Art Curious, Stories of the Unexpected, Slightly Odd, and Strangely Wonderful in Art History is a brand new book with lots of weird and wildly entertaining stories that haven't been covered on this podcast. Stories like the rise of everybody's favorite painter of the pretty, Claude Monet, and how all those water lilies and haystacks were actually subversive badassery. How some late 19th and early 20th century women may possibly be the first abstract artists. And what do toenail clippings and a chunk of Caroline Kennedy's birthday cake have to do with one of Andy Warhol's most enduring legacies? Art Curious, the book, will be released on September 15, 2020, but you can pre-order now to reserve your copy. Pre-order links are available in the show notes or at our website, artcuriouspodcast.com slash book. That's artcuriouspodcast.com slash book. This season of the Art Curious Podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Anchor Light. Please visit anchorlightraleigh.com to learn all about their artist residency programs, exhibitions, and more. During my first year of graduate school, I struggled to figure out my topic for my upcoming master's thesis. I loved so many different arts and artists, and I really didn't know what to focus on. But like many of the best things in life, the idea just happened to me. While taking a course on 18th century art, I fell in love with the theory of the sublime as originally developed by philosopher Edmund Burke. Burke envisioned the sublime as a feeling of such awesomeness, such grandeur, that it cannot be comprehended really a greatness past human logic or measurement, and so much so that a feeling of terror or a sensation of pure inadequacy would accompany it. I was obsessed with this theory and loved seeing its visual incarnations by artists like Henry Fuseli, Joseph Wright of Darby, Caspar David Friedrich, and many others. Moving then into the 19th century with Theodore Jericho and J.M.W. Turner, the stars of our 51st and 36th episodes, respectively. It's still a topic in art that just drives me wild. But I noticed those many years ago that there was something missing. Women, as always. I even asked one of my professors to help me identify female painters tackling the sublime. But for him, no one came to mind. And then another professor said to me, well, you might consider this one artist. Her images of horses running ferociously through a stadium-like setting are something, to say the least. So, armed with a name and a very vague idea, I went to the library and checked out my first book on Rosa Bonheur. And what I learned about her is that she is one serious, badass painter. A woman who should get far more name recognition now than ever, even if some consider her to be only a painter of animals. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs can be weirder, crazier, or more fun than you can imagine. In season seven, we are uncovering the coolest artists you don't know. And today, we're focusing on an artist very close to my own heart. World, get to know Rosa Bonheur. This is the Art Curious Podcast. Exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel.
I was not yet four when I conceived a veritable passion for drawing, and I bespattered the white walls as high as I could reach with my shapeless daubs, reminisced Rosa Bonheur about her own upbringing. She continued in her memoirs, recalling, quote, Another great amusement was to cut objects out of paper. They were always the same, however. I would begin by making long paper ribbons, and then with my scissors, I would cut out, in the first place, a shepherd, and then after him a dog, and next a cow, and next a ship, and next a tree, inevitably in the same order. I have spent many a long day in this pastime." Unquote. Truly, both an interest in art and an interest in animals came obviously early to Marie-Rosalie Bonheur, called Rosa, who was born on March 16, 1822, in Bordeaux, France. And longtime listeners, you know the drill here. A woman who grows up to be a creative type prior to the late 19th and early 20th century had some general familial help, exposure, and support. And in Rosa's case, it came from both sides of her family. Her father, Raymond, was a painter and also taught drawing lessons, while her mother, Sophie, taught lessons in music. Rosa thus received her first artistic education in her father's own studio, where she would watch him closely as he painted or drew. And he was the most supportive of fathers, too, always stopping to share his techniques with her and patiently answering her many questions. And Rosa would mirror him, play-acting her own role as an artist. There's a very sweet story about Rosa as a child where Raymond would welcome subjects into his studio to sit for a portrait. And Rosa would be right there, nearby, posing her dolls as if they, too, were getting ready to sit for their portraits. In the early 1820s, the Bonheur family moved from Bordeaux to Paris so that Papa Raymond could bring his family into a place with greater opportunity, especially in his line of work. He moved there first, and then Rosa and her family, which by now included brothers Auguste and Isidore, and later two younger sisters, followed a couple years later, when Rosa was about six years old. By the time she turned seven, Rosa was placed in an all-boys school directly below the building they lived in, a fascinating choice of education encouraged by the family's belief in St. Simeonism, which was a kind of political-slash-religious sect that placed the equality of women, especially in education, as a huge priority. And it was at this all-boys school that she said she acquired some rather boyish manners and likings, something that she noted she retained for the rest of her life. It was also the place where it was quickly made evident that Rosa was not an ideal student. She was quick to anger and disruption, slow to read, and of course she preferred to spend her time doodling rather than listening to academic lectures. Her mother, Sophie, attempted to use this proclivity toward drawing to her advantage, and she asked Rosa to practice reading and writing the alphabet by drawing little sketches of animals next to each associated letter. Art and animals. For Rosa Bonheur, they would always be connected. Things were bumpy there for a while, though, in Paris of the 1830s. The Bonheur lived through the citywide turmoil of the July Revolution, a four-day-long event that resulted in the overthrow of the French Bourbon monarchy. The family also moved repeatedly during the next few years, uprooting time and again, all while adding to their brood. Sister Juliette arrived in 1830, and the baby, Sister Isabel, not long after. But the worst was when their mother, Sophie, passed away in 1833, all while their father was really struggling to make a steady income due to the upheaval of the July Revolution. By the late 1830s, Raymond needed his daughter to pitch in on the family finances, and plus, he wanted to find something to keep her occupied. 
After envisioning a long-term path towards some kind of business for his daughter, Raymond first subjected Rosa to learn dressmaking, and that didn't go well. He then tried to enroll her in a different school and get her back to being focused on academics. But her antics and desires to play all-too-real games of combat, warfare, and cavalry charges led her to be expelled before she could even finish her second day of school. At his wit's end, Raymond finally allowed her access to his studio, just as she had when she was very young. And that was it. That made her life's dream happen. The passion that would charge her work for the rest of her life. Rosa Bonheur drew and painted everything within an arm's reach. And when her father arrived home to his studio one day, he came across an easel holding a small painting of cherries, which she had completed not long before. He was immediately struck by her ability to convey nature with such realism. And he then encouraged her to work seriously so that she may become an artist. Such serious work now meant that Rosa needed to create opportunities for herself to observe and sketch the world around her. The Berner family during her teenage years was settled in the 8th arrondissement in Paris, located near these vast open pastures that stretched as far as the eye could see. Luckily for Rosa, this meant having immediate access to farms that were both stocked, as she would later say, with cows, sheep, pigs, and poultry, and that would allow her to spend entire days watching these animals, studying their every movement and facial expressions. She also tried her hand at dissecting animals in an attempt to better understand their anatomies so that her renderings would be more lifelike. But she did not enjoy this very much, understandably so from my perspective. So instead, she turned to making clay and wax models of animals, which also established in her a secondary interest in sculpture. This, along with her father's tutelage and a period of study at the art school at the Louvre, prepared her for her path in life. Rosa Bonheur would paint animals. In 1841, at the age of just 19, Rosa achieved something rather important. She submitted two works to that year's salon, and both were accepted and exhibited there. If you recall our episode on the rivalry between John Constable and J.M.W. Turner, then you'll remember that acceptance and exhibition at the salon was one of the biggest deals in European art at that time. A long art showcase that could really make or break careers, turning people like Turner just nine years beforehand into a superstar. For Rosa, it wasn't quite that same career-making turn as it was for Turner, but it did allow her to get a little more attention and spurred her to further submit to the salon on an annual basis. Slowly, she began to build a following and a larger portfolio, using her art sales to fund travels across France and beyond, and where she continued studying her various animal subjects in new and exciting ways. Things were progressing nicely in Rosa Bonheur's personal life, too. In 1842, just a year after her inclusion in the first salon, she received a commission to paint a portrait of a girl named Nathalie Mika. Nathalie was eight years younger than Rosa, but they bonded immediately, forming a partnership that would go on to last decades. Rosa Bonheur was welcomed into the extended Mikas family, and Nathalie became a part of Bonheur's daily life, acting as her closest confidant, assistant, and great love. And with the support of Nathalie as a loving partner, who essentially managed Bonheur's household so that she could afford to work as a professional artist in a time where doing so for women was not the norm, Rosa Bonheur improved significantly in technique and appeal 
continually creating work both for general consumption and for salon consideration. And it was the Salon of 1849 that made all the difference, an exhibition that would catapult Rosa Bonheur to become a household name. That's coming up next, right after this break. By listening to this podcast, you can probably tell that I love learning. And one of my favorite resources to discover new information is The Great Courses Plus, like learning how to draw or how to take better photos from National Geographic photographers or explore topics on business, literature, history, personal development, and even learn new great hobbies like yoga or chess. With The Great Courses Plus, there are thousands of fun and informative lectures to explore, all of which are presented by engaging experts who not only are knowledgeable, but are so passionate about their subjects, which then, of course, makes learning a blast. But don't just take my word for it. One listener to The Great Courses Plus noted that it made him happy to be stuck in traffic. That's how engaging The Great Courses Plus program is. For art-curious listeners, I recommend checking out their course, How to Paint. In this course, Professor Ricky Altman reminds us that learning to be an artist is often just about practicing and taking the time to develop your technique. See why thousands of other learners are subscribed to The Great Courses Plus. They are offering my listeners a free trial of unlimited access to their entire library. And you can sign up today using my special URL to take advantage of this great deal. Start your free trial at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash art. Remember, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash art. Staying healthy and strong is more important than ever. And for me, it's all about taking care of myself by going for a walk or a run every day. And then to help me stay further resilient and well, I take supplements from Objective Wellness. Objective offers targeted solutions, everything from better sleep to firmer skin or having a healthy immune system. And their products are crafted with the highest quality ingredients to deliver specific results. And behind each ingredient, there are scientific studies and endless hours of research. So for example, they have active extracts from blueberries, saffron, and even microalgae, which provides an excellent antioxidant that is 6,000 times stronger than vitamin C. And Objective knows that wellness looks different on everyone and that there is a no one size fits all solution. That's why Objective focuses on your targeted solutions, giving you exactly what you need and where you need it. I am particularly excited to try their Immune Plus Wellness gummies that include elderberry, propolis, and echinacea. These berries and flowers come together to create these top immune enhancers for daily support that I need to stay healthy for any reason and during any season. Go to objectivewellness.com and use code ARTCURIOUS to get 20% off your first order. If you're not completely satisfied, you can get a full refund, and that is the objective promise. Again, that's objectivewellness.com, code ARTCURIOUS for 20% off. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food or Drug Administration, and all products discussed or advertised are not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back to Art Curious. In 1849, Rosa Bonheur received the opportunity to present herself as an option for a prestigious commission from the French government. For the commission, she produced a painting depicting the Charolais cattle of a province known as the Nivernais, which is today in central France. The Nivernais was a huge agricultural region prized for these Charolais cattle, long seen as integral to plowing and preparing the land for farming. 
Such an image, with the government's approval, could almost be read as a marketing ploy or advertising for the good works of the region and providing for the food and drink needs of the country. But for Bonheur, it became so much more than that. It became about praising the animals as much or more than their human counterparts in their efforts to assist humankind. Bonheur's painting, titled Plowing in the Nivernay, beautifully depicts 12 of these Charolais oxen plowing the land for the first stage of the year's soil preparation. A group of six oxen are in the foreground, and they comprise the main focal point of the work, while the remaining six can be seen making their way up the hill behind. The farmers are really barely noticeable behind these strong, hulking bodies of the cattle, and my eyes hardly clock their involvement there. That's how much attention Rosa Bonheur draws to the animals. So rather than celebrating humankind's appropriation of the land, Rosa wished to solely focus on nature's great gifts to us humans. And not only did it work well for the French government in terms of the commission, it also really worked well for Rosa herself. Plowing in the Nivernay won Bonheur a first place medal in that year's salon, which solidified her already solid reputation as a legitimate, highly skilled artist. Her fame skyrocketed to new heights, and certainly there must have been a point in which it seemed impossible for her to become even more popular and lauded. And yet, she did. In 1852, she began work on a monumental painting, a painting that is nearly two-thirds life-size of a scene she witnessed at least once a week for practically two years before opting to set paint to canvas. Beginning in 1850, Rosa Bonheur frequently visited a horse market on the Boulevard de l'Hôpital, a tree-lined street thoroughfare in Paris not terribly far from the famed, and infamous really, Salpêtrière Hospital. There, she witnessed the parading of horses, especially large workhorses like the ones she would eventually depict. Around and around, these horses ran, shown off to their full muscular extent by their dealers. It was a scene that had a lasting effect on the artist, a scene she simply had to replicate for herself onto canvas. But first, she had to get into the horse fair in 1850 to begin with, which was a whole other side issue. Because, you see, such places like these horse fairs and the slaughterhouses that Bonheur also occasionally visited were considered male-only spaces, with women being forbidden for their own good, supposedly, due to their <coughs> delicate demeanors. They were kept from entering these places, and where they weren't explicitly forbidden to enter, women were nevertheless highly and vocally discouraged. But Bonheur was adamant. She needed to do her proper research and to actually watch the animals in action at the horse fair. So she went to the police to gain access, and by doing so, procured for herself a so-called permission de travestissement, which is literally a cross-dressing permit, so that she could legally be allowed to wear pants and enter the fair not just because walking around in mud and horse poop would be way easier and far more sanitary than in long, ground-brushing skirts, but because wearing trousers would act as a kind of armor. Bonheur could blend in, hide herself a little bit, blending into the crowd of other pants-wearing folks so that she wouldn't get harassed for simply being there. To even get to the point of really being able to make this painting was a big deal. It had a lot of work. Rosa had to really put herself out there to even make it happen. But it paid off. Really, really paid off. Completed in 1853, the horse fair was the biggest milestone of her entire career. 
And as with plowing in the Nivernais, this work is all about the power of animal kind. The struggle between humans and nature, all made visible in the wildness of Bonner's horses and their refusal to be tamed. There is not a still moment in this image, and that swirling sense of movement and just barely contained chaos is palpable, made even more intense by the fact that it is a huge painting. As I mentioned, it's approximately two-thirds life-size, it's about eight feet tall by 16 and a half feet wide, and it practically engulfs us as viewers. You can almost feel the wind that whips the horse's manes, the thundering of their stamping hooves, and it is sublime. Sublime in that Edmund Burke sense, that feeling of our own powerlessness against the forces of nature. About a work completed later in her life, Bonar expressed her wish to, quote, show the horses snorting fire and dust welling up in their hooves. I want this infernal waltz, this wild tornado, to make people's heads spin. Even at high noon, they've got to hear an echo of the horses treading up a great storm." Unquote. I love this description, and I think it also applies very perfectly here with the horse fair. This work is, and was, a sensational achievement. Many others thought so at the time, too. So while it didn't win an award at the 1853 Salon, it did receive a considerable amount of attention and heapings of critical praise, even if some did judge the work for its, quote, masculine qualities, unquote. It was even popular enough that two exhibitions of the work were held in the following years, one in Ghent, Belgium, and the other back in France, in Bordeaux. But after that, another big opportunity came a-calling, and that was for a two-year-long tour of the painting across Great Britain, where it was outlandishly beloved by those animal-loving Brits, including everyone from famed art critic John Ruskin and the artist Edwin Landseer, himself one of the other most important animal painters of the century. Even Queen Victoria requested, and naturally received, a personal viewing of the work of art and an audience with Bonheur. All of this had a significant financial uptick for Bonheur, too, who fulfilled several requests for copies and smaller versions of the work of art, as well as allowing for prints to be made of the work and sold off, which meant that the further influence and love of the horse fair only continued to grow. Eventually, the work ended up for sale, where it found its way finally into the hands of the Vanderbilt family. And it was Cornelius Vanderbilt II who donated it to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York in 1887. It has been lovingly housed there ever since. And I personally make a pilgrimage to see it each and every visit I make to the Met. The success of the horse fair, which basically set Rosa Bonner up for life, financially speaking, did have its downsides. By the late 1850s, Bonner was tired of the spotlight, tired of the increasing demands on her time and on her person, and she wanted to step back a bit. That year, she bought a chateau and several outbuildings in the small town of B, located about an hour's drive south of Paris. She built a studio there and happily painted there for almost 40 years, living alongside Nathalie Mika and their menagerie of animals. Life was much quieter during the second half of her life, wherein she enjoyed staying at home in B and inviting friends over to quote, smoke cigarettes and chat by the fire, as noted on the wonderful website, The Art Story. There was a memorable and seriously awesome moment of excitement, though, when Eugenie, the last empress of France, arrived at B to present the artist with the Grand Cross of the Legion of Honor, a merit award that was established by Napoleon himself and is still in existence today. 
This was and is the highest honor of the land. And think of what it signified that not only was it given to a female artist, but that the empress herself visited B to bestow it upon her. Bonheur didn't go to the empress. The empress came to her. Now come on, that is super cool. The roughest time in Rosa Bonheur's life was undoubtedly in 1889 and the years just after. Nathalie Mika, her partner of decades, died in 1889, and Bonheur, quite understandably, grieved heavily, reporting to a friend, quote, How hard it is to be separated. She alone knew me, and I, her only friend, knew what she was worth. Unquote. From all accounts, including Bonheur's own, it took a few years to get back to feeling any semblance of positivity. By the mid-1890s, though, things were starting to look up. And they continued to get better after Bunner kindly accepted a request to sit for a portrait by the young American painter Anna Klumpke. And it was with Klumpke where Bunner finally found happiness again. Anna Klumpke became her partner and shared the last few years of Rosa Bunner's life, just as Natalie Mika had done before her, living and working aside the great Rosa Bunner before Bunner's own death in May of 1899. Anna Klumpke lived about another 40 years past her partner, but after her own death, all three of these wonderful women were united at the famed Père Lachaise Cemetery in Paris. It's there that Rosa Bunner is interred alongside her great two loves. And you can go visit their grave sites today. In the late 19th century, that big hullabaloo now known as Impressionism came along, and abstraction was born, cubism and futurism prevailed, and all things modern have brought us to the brink of, if not forgetting about Rosa Bonheur, at least not quite appreciating her the way that we really should. Her works are extremely realistic, lifelike even, and they indeed are mostly paintings of animals. But perhaps we should be looking more towards the artist here instead of her artistic output to really determine Bonheur's long-lasting importance. Due to her popularity, she was actually a household name, popular enough that in the 1860s, after the runaway success of the horse fair, porcelain Rosa Bonheur dolls were made and widely loved by children across the world, including, famously, a young Anna Klumke, who adored her Rosa Bonheur doll while she was growing up in San Francisco. Bunner was, and is, such an inspiration for women today to do and achieve great things, as well as to follow their own drums. With her cross-dressing permit and her own sheer comfort-wearing pants, she has been adopted by many as an example of rejecting the gender binary. Living in a time where gender expression was strictly controlled and quite literally policed, her assuming of traditionally male attire was nothing if not political, a feminist act before feminism was coined as a term. And she was dedicated, too, to helping other women achieve greatness, calling womanhood the, quote, sex to which I proudly belong and whose independence I shall defend to my dying day, unquote. She succeeded her father as the director of a Parisian art school for girls until her decampment to be in the late 1950s something that she did all while maintaining her independent art career. And after her death, Anna Klumke managed her estate and opened the Rosa Bonheur Memorial School for Girls, giving generations further opportunity and head start needed to achieve their own dreams of a career in art. 
All of this, and many, many other reasons, are enough to keep Rosa Bonheur at the top of my list of the coolest artists out there. Thank you for listening to the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel, with additional writing and research help by Adria Gunter. And for lots more wonderful facts, image, and quotes of Rosa Bonheur, check out The Art Story, a website that breaks down artists, artworks, periods, and stories in a clear, concise manner. Theartstory.org. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com. Our logo is by Dave Rainey at daverainydesign.com. And social media help is by Emily Crockett and Caroline Holler. Our audio production services are provided by Kabunki, the silliest name in superb podcasts and video. Let them help you too at kabonki.com. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by Anchorlight. Anchorlight is a creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition space, Anchorlight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator. We are a fully independent podcast, and so we rely on ads, sponsors, and donations to keep us going. If you have the means, please consider giving $10 to help us, and thank you for all you do. For more details on our show, including images mentioned in the episode today, please visit our website, artcuriouspodcast.com. We are also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at artcuriouspod. Check back in two weeks as we continue to explore the unexpected, the slightly odd, and strangely wonderful in art history.